All right, you may all be seated. This is going to be a record for us. We're finishing a whole book in just two Sundays. <laughs> this is the last Sunday in fir- or in Second John, but it is the fourth part in our little series here through John's epistles. And so we are in the uh, in the section in our outline on fellowship in practice. So how exactly do we apply the things that John taught us in his first epistle? And this morning we look specifically at the idea of protecting truth and love. Last time we looked at practicing it and how this little congregation was practicing love by walking in the truth and how John was extending his love to them by reaffirming them in the truth. We saw that for love to exist, it needs to be on the foundation of truth. These aren't two things that need to be balanced, but they are two things that must coexist. And this morning, then, we see why it is so important that we protect both truth and love together. The main idea, then, is that John is concerned for the truth in the churches under his care. He warns them not to receive false teachers or else they might miss out on the rewards waiting for them at the judgment seat of Christ. Just as John warns these churches not to receive these false teachers, he also expects that they will receive him when he comes to them. So there is an extension of fellowship on one side, and on the other side there is a cessation of fellowship. We want to uh, make our expression of fellowship match what is spiritually true. These false teachers do not have spiritual fellowship with the believers, so they are not to pretend that they do by extending an outward expression of fellowship to them. We begin then in verse 7, looking at the perseverance that John is promoting among these believers. He begins by sharing his concern. Now this verse begins with a for. In the Greek, this is a, uh, this is a dependent clause. That means it depends on what came just before it. So in order to understand this reason, we have to look at what was before. This is the reason for his statements before. So in 2 John 7, he says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. He's warning them about these deceivers because they have a command to love one another. And that command to love one another depends on truth. And truth is opposed to the message of the deceivers. Second John 5, he said, Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Notice John is not innovating here. This is the same message that Christ delivered to him. This is then the same message that he is delivering to this congregation. Now, some of the things that he says might be new to them, but they are not new to the faith. They are not new doctrine to the truth. It does not go beyond the truth, but uh, he is reaffirming this truth to them so that they can stand firm and stand strong on it. He says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. Now remember, 2 John is most likely the cover letter for the epistle of 1 John. This made 1 John a circular letter, meaning that it would go to various churches and they could receive this sermon. So this commandment that he is talking about would depend then on the message of 1 John. What is his commandment that he reminds them of? He's using shorthand in 2 John because he taught this doctrine in chapter 3 of 1 John. It says this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another, just as he commanded us. This is really what it boils down to. Of course, loving God is believing God, believing his word. When we disbelieve him or when we enter into fear, it really comes from arrogance. It comes from a point of self-possession, where rather than being possessed and focused, on God, we turn to ourselves. We look to ourselves, and this is a failure to believe in him and to trust him and to see his finished work. We turn instead from his work to our work, 
So this is why it is so important that we continue to believe in that same gospel that saved us. It's the same gospel as we continue in it that sanctifies us. It's like the song that we just sang, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. This is sanctification. This is the process of living the spiritual life. We become so occupied with Christ that his thoughts become our thoughts, that his life becomes our life, that his power works through us. We want to walk with him. And so we have to continue to believe him. We have to trust him. And the natural outworking of this is love for God and love for God's children, our brothers and sisters. So the truth that John is telling them to consistently follow is infinitely important to their fellowship. They cannot have fellowship without it. Notice how he began his epistle. He says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. Truth was important for the way that John is loving them. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. The truth is what binds them together as a church. For the sake of the truth, because of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. This is their fellowship. Those who come with a different message are not in that fellowship. And this is why John is concerned, because he has great joy. He says, I, I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, John has received this report that some of the children of this local church are walking in the truth, and he wants to preserve that. He wants to promote that, and he wants to make sure nothing comes in their way. So he says, just as we have received commandment from the Father to do. So you can see naturally why he is concerned that deceivers have gone out. People with a different message have gone out into these congregations, and they are trying to promote these messages that are going to break fellowship. And they're going to do more than that. They're going to destroy the work that John the Apostle has done in these congregations and that they have done through walking with Christ. In 1 John 2, 18 and 19, we see that John is also concerned with these false teachers in his epistle. Now, 2 John is written for the purpose of choosing teachers wisely. 1 John gives us the doctrine that these teachers should bring. And it also warns us here, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, that is one who brings teaching opposing Christ, or ultimately the one who stands in the place of Christ and declares himself to be Christ. Because when we shift away from Christ, what do we do? We shift to ourselves. Now this will have an ultimate culmination in the false Messiah and in the false prophet. This is what humanity is leading towards in the deception from Satan. But ultimately, the, the temptation is for us to not make Jesus God of our lives or Lord of our lives, but to make self Lord of our lives. And that's what these have done. They've come in trusting their own words, their own intuition, their own perceptions, and their own mystical experiences. And they are trying to promote those as truth. They are drawing the attention away from Christ and onto themselves. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, false teachers, in other words. For this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they, were, they all were not of us. Now, this is John's clever way of saying, they are coming to you as if they are teachers from us, but they're not. Now, when John sends this letter, 2 John, 3 John, and 1 John, he is sending them by means of a messenger from John to these churches. These churches are supposed to receive the message that John is sending them, and they are not supposed to receive messages that contradict what he is sending. And so there are teachers trying to come into their church and say, we have a message from John, or we have a message from the apostles. This is the true or the deeper teachings that they have. We've come to share more of the truth with you. And John says, they're not really from us. They're not bringing the same message. 
then it's not of us. And this was his example concern. They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. Now, Jesus is the Messiah, the man. Christ is his divine title. So all through the Old Testament, we have this expectation of the Messiah. And we'll see in a moment how he was expected to be both man and God, though that wasn't fully understood by all. However, when he came, he was given the name Jesus. And so Jesus, the Messiah, is the God-man. And he came in the flesh. This is very important for our salvation. In fact, if we do not have this truth, we do not have a Savior. If he is not both fully God and fully man, there is no salvation through him. And this is what John is concerned with. This was the gospel that they believed at first. And people are coming with a different gospel. If you're following along with our Bible reading schedule, you just read Galatians 1 through 3 this last week. Galatians 1 has this very same warning. Galatians was the first epistle written by Paul way back in the early 50s, probably around 52 or 53 AD. This was 40 years before John wrote this message, and already they are dealing with people bringing in false messages. Paul says, even if you hear a different message from an angel or from another spirit, do not believe it. Even if we come preaching to you a different message, do not believe it. The message that was once for all handed down to the saints is the message we are saved by and that we continue to be sanctified by. It's not salvation by grace and then sanctification by works. It's not salvation by Jesus and then sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It is salvation by Jesus Christ and sanctification by occupation with the person of Jesus Christ, by continuing to believe that message. Philippians 2.6 drives home the importance of his incarnation, that he became human. It tells us some of the mechanics of how this worked towards our salvation. Paul writes that although he, being Jesus Christ, existed in the form of God, his divine nature, although he was fully God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to, to stay up there on his throne with God. Instead, he emptied himself or he humbled himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. So he exists in the form of God and he takes on another form. He doesn't abandon the one and take on the other as his new essence of being. He adds to himself the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He takes on human nature. So being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our Savior, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who could pay for our sins and did pay for our sins. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus' name has been exalted by God. And these men are coming to these congregations and preaching some different Jesus, some different Christ, or some different Messiah. They are not teaching the Jesus who is the God-man. They might use the name Jesus, but they'll say he's not God. Or they might use the Christ, but they'll say he's not Jesus. This is an issue. Because looking forward into the great and final judgment, we see that every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now this word here in Philippians that is translated confess is the same exact Greek word that we see here, acknowledge. This is homologeo in the Greek or same speech, to be of the same speech, the same mind, to be in agreement. This is the same confess that we see in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is to be in agreement. These false teachers do not agree. Now, this might not even be the message that they have come to teach. 
but they do not believe this. If they have a false view of Christ, the rest of their teaching is going to be skewed because this is the very heart and the very beginning of the gospel. Without this, you do not have a gospel. And so we're going to take a minute to look at 12 reasons why Jesus absolutely must be God and that he absolutely must be man and that these must both exist simultaneously. Now, there are an endless number of reasons. I've chosen just four from each of these categories of his humanity, his deity, and the necessity that he be both. So for his humanity, he had to be fully human in order to stand in the place of man as a substitute. You could not put an ape or an angel or an alien in place of Adam. It had to be another man, the second Adam. In order for Christ to exercise his high priesthood today, he has to be a man today. Jesus did not become incarnate for the time that he was on earth and then give up his humanity when he went back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God. In order to be a priest, he has to represent as one of those people. For example, we look back into the Old Testament and we see the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi could be priests, but you couldn't take someone from Moab to be a priest. And why is that? Because Levi represents Israel to God. Moab is not from Israel. So you could not have a Moabite priest. In order to be a priest, they must represent from within the camp. Jesus, to represent mankind to God, must represent from within humanity. In order to be the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, he had to be a man. This was promised back in Genesis 3.15, the oldest prophecy in all of Scripture, that by the seed of the woman, the serpent's head would be crushed. This seed promise continues, and we see this occupation with this human Messiah all through the Old Testament. This promise of a coming seed, a coming Savior, is always human. If he were to come into the New Testament and not be human, but claim only to be God, then he is neither. As well, Jesus was the pioneer of the spiritual life. Jesus showed us, that as, as an example in his life, how to deal with the problems of life in the body of Christ, and that is to depend on the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Now, Christ did not give up his power as the second person in all circumstances. We do see the second person of the Trinity exercise power while he's here on earth. For example, when he turns the water into wine at the wedding feast of Cana, he is exercising his power as creator. He is showing us that he is God. But when it comes to dealing with the issues of everyday life, such as the temptation that he receives from Satan, he depends on the power of the Holy Spirit as it fills him with God's word. And he uses passages from Deuteronomy, the very covenant that God made with Israel of a coming king and a coming Messiah to show Satan that his plan was going to fail, but God's was going to come true. This is an occupation with the word of God, and it is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, many of the miracles that he did as well were done by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 12, when the Pharisees come and reject Jesus the Messiah, he says that they have rejected the power of the Holy Spirit, and they have claimed that that power is the power of Satan. And he says this would not be forgiven them. Why? Because he had shown them the power of God. He had shown them the power of himself in the second person of the Trinity. He had shared with them God's word. The very last testimony to his messiahship on earth was the empowering of the Holy Spirit. In 
In order to be a savior as well, he must be fully God. Only fully God could be qualified as sinless God. In order to be sinless, to pay for the sin full, there could not be a single blemish on him. Now, Adam was the very first person created. And when God created the next person, Eve, he created her from the side of Adam, from an uncorrupted root. And then they both became corrupt through sin. At that point, humanity became corrupt, and anything that would come from it would share in its corruption, unless God would step in, as he did with the virgin birth, and protect that conception so that it would be apart from the sin nature and apart from the imputation of the penalty of sin. Christ had no sin nature because the sin nature comes from the corruption of our flesh. And the penalty of sin is given to those who possess this corruption in the flesh from the seed of Adam. So only God could be sinless. No man could be born apart from God sinless. Jesus was perfect righteousness. We saw even in unconfirmed holiness, before the fall, Adam and Eve failed to live up to the righteous expectations of God. But most of the Gospels are concerned with demonstrating the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The very point of that is that no man can do that. No man can be perfectly righteous because all have sinned and fallen short of the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ has infinite value as well. In fact, I tried to find just a few verses from the book of Hebrews to present this, but this essentially is the argument of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is superior to all other things. No sacrifice compares. No other person compares. No angel compares. It is Jesus Christ, supreme in infinite value. And so when Jesus Christ, the infinitely valued God, died for finite man, his sacrifice was sufficient for all of mankind. If he was not God, if he was just a man, he could only stand in the place of one man, assuming that he somehow was sinless and righteous, which as we saw is impossible for a man. This is one we may not think about very often, but only as an uncreated God could Jesus Christ take on a created form. Angels are already created. Animals are already created. Anything else besides God himself that could stand in this place already has a created form. Only the uncreated creator could step into his creation and become one of us. God could not have turned an angel into us. They were created as angels. They already had a created form. He could have changed them to look like us. But when he creates, he creates infinitely. That's why we have immortality already. Whether or not we spend it in heaven or hell, we were created infinitely. Why must these be one and the same at all times? The Messiah that we saw must be human was also promised to be eternal. How do you have an eternal Messiah King unless he is God? There is only one way. He must be God. And so we see all the way back in 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17, when God promises to David that his descendant would be the eternal king over Israel. We saw from that moment that God had revealed his plan to incarnate himself into David's line. Now that would just 
floor me. In fact, even today, not being part of the line of David, it floors me. Imagine for David. And how about this promise? God with us. His name will be Emmanuel. This is more than just a promise of him dwelling in the same area as we are. Israel had already experienced this. The Shekinah glory dwelt among them in their presence. This was a promise of something more. That his presence would be eternally together with them. There is no way to do this other than to infinitely unite these two. To unite them in one person, in the God-man, Jesus Christ. We see from Hebrews and elsewhere that Jesus is a mediator between God and man. We saw that as a priest, he must represent us by being one of us. But as a mediator, he must equally represent both parties. You don't get this unless you have a God-man. He represents God to us perfectly because he is perfect Godhood. He represents us to God perfectly because he is perfect humanity. And in order for him to offer atonement for the whole world, he must be at the same time a perfect substitution and infinite in value. Now this is a lot of information about who Jesus is, who Jesus the God-man is. And it might start to make us sweat when we start thinking about sharing the gospel. How do we understand all this so that we can share it with someone else so that they can believe it and be saved? How much of this do they need to believe to be saved? In fact, this is a good question. And once again, it makes me think of a good car analogy. I promise I'm not really a car person, but they come very easily. When I was 15, I knew nothing about the engine of my car. In fact, even today, I would probably argue that I know very little about the engine of my car. But I know that when I get in it and I turn the key, it's going to work. And when I put it in drive, it's going to move forward. This is belief and this is faith. I don't need to know everything about how the engine works, how the gas lines bring gas to the engine. I don't need to know how many spark plugs are in it. I know that it works. Now all of that is there to be investigated. All of that is there for me to learn. And I'll be a better car operator if I know more about the engine of my car. I'll be able to fix a problem when a problem occurs. I'll have confidence that I'll know where to turn in case of an issue. This is the difference between faith that saves and faith that grows. In order to be saved, we don't have to understand how the hypostatic union works. We just need to know that it does. We need to know that he is able to stand in our place. And we need to know that this was accepted by God. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Everything else after that is evidence for this fact. He was buried, confirming his death. He was resurrected, confirming its acceptability to God. Jesus died for your sins, and that is the gospel. Jesus substituted himself for you, and it worked. If you believe that, you are saved. All of this information helps to give us confidence so that we know the God who saved us, so that we can grow in intimacy with him. It's very hard to love someone you know nothing about. You don't have to love God to be saved. Many people would say, well, that can't be right. But it's true. God saved us while we were still enemies. God loved us while we were still his enemies. God provided once for all the sacrifice for sin for men who are all his enemies so that we might be reconciled to him, so that we might become friends of his, so that we might learn who he is and come to love him. And as we have personal love for God, as we know him and love him, we can have both impersonal and personal love for his children. 
And this is one thing that we see in John's epistle here. He says that he loves this woman and her children, which probably means this church and all the members in it. But also all of those who know the church love her as well. They have impersonal love for this church because they have personal love for this church's father. This is the wonderful and amazing fact of fellowship with Christ. When we stand in this truth and we stand in the love of Christ and when we learn to know who he is and we grow in our love for him, we have fellowship not just with him but also with our fellow believers. And so all of us here in this room today, we have personal love for one another. We know each other. We grow to love one another as we learn who each other are in Christ. But when we meet a stranger in the body of Christ, we can have impersonal love for this stranger as well, because they are no stranger to our Father, who should be no stranger to us. But John presents a command then to this church, in fact, these possibly many churches that received this letter. He knows that in the churches under his jurisdiction, there are false teachers coming who are teaching a different gospel other than Jesus, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And that is an issue because without Jesus, the God-man, you have no gospel. You have no salvation. And if they believe this, then they depart from the truth. If they believe this, then yes, they have the faith that saves because that is once and for all, but they have abandoned the faith that sanctifies. They have abandoned the faith that introduced them into grace, as Paul says. They have ceased to stand in that truth and growth cannot happen. He is concerned for the growth of this church. And why? Because he is worried that they will not receive the full reward that has been prepared already on their behalf. So he says, watch yourselves. Be careful. This is very similar to his command at the end of 1 John. Guard yourselves from idols. Be, care of be, be careful about being distracted by false things, by things that aren't true, by things that aren't the true and eternal God. This is very much like Paul's warning in Philippians 3, where he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. This is a commandment. His will for us is to be happy and joyful in the message that we have received and the salvation that we've received. He says, to write the same thing again is no trouble to me. In other words, this is worth repeating. And it is a safeguard for you. It says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. This all probably has the same antecedent, the same idea, the same content. These dogs, these evil workers, this false circumcision is all the same thing. These dogs or evil workers have come teaching them a gospel that is different. In the case of Philippians, this false circumcision would be sanctification by the works of your hands. Perhaps you were saved, but you have to be circumcised in order to be sanctified. In order to grow, you have to follow the law of Moses. This contradicts everything the New Testament teaches. In order to grow, we have to understand that we cannot fulfill the righteousness of the law, but that Jesus is that righteousness. And as we live our life in him, and he perfectly kept the law, then we do keep the law, the law of Messiah. Now, Ignatius of Smyrna, who came after John and was a, um, a teacher in the same area, there. Smyrna was one of the closest churches to Ephesus where John was bishop. Ignatius of Smyrna wrote something very similar to the church of Smyrna, which may have been one of the recipients of this circular letter. He wrote, I am guarding you in advance against wild beasts in human form. People whom you must not even welcome, but if possible, not even meet. Nevertheless, do pray for them that somehow they might repent, difficult though it may be. But Jesus Christ, our true life, has power over this. So this was a pastor who came a couple decades after John, teaching the same message as John has. Now John in this second letter is often accused of being 
hard or harsh towards those false teachers, saying that we can't greet them even. We can't even say hello to them. This is very harsh. Well, we see that this is, in fact, the meaning. But this doesn't mean we don't love them. Because what is love? Love comes from the foundation of truth. The most loving thing that we can do is to not accept them in their falsehood. To not accept the lies that they are spreading. Because if they are not successful in their message, perhaps they will take a second look at it. If they are trying to infiltrate the church with with a false message and it's not working, perhaps they will look for the truth. And there are consequences for following in these teachers' false teachings. John says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished. This is his reason that they need to watch. This is his worry. This is what he's concerned about, that they are going to lose what they've accomplished. And notice he doesn't just say what you have accomplished, but he makes himself a part of this. The gospel, the growth of the church, is not a one-person issue. The message is shared, the message is preached, and the message is heard. Automatically, this takes two. God uses people to share his gospel. He uses people to help grow other believers. And when someone in the care of another believer falls from the truth, it is a disappointment both for that person and their reward, but also for the one who shared the message. It's as Paul says, where he looks at some and says that you are my crown, my glory. Because they heard the message and they believed it. They are the evidence in this world of Paul's work that has a reward waiting for him in heaven. And to see that fading away, where these who once believed are departing from that truth, this would be lost to John as well in this world. But there is an eternal consequence as well. They might not receive a full reward. See, everyone is going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone is going to be recompensed, as Paul puts it, for the works that they've done in the body. This is something we can all expect. This is something we all look forward to. And now this judgment is not one of condemnation, but one of assessment. In fact, this has the idea of approval. They will be approved for those things that they did in the body of Christ. Notice, in order to be approved at this judgment, the works that you do have to be in the body of Christ. If you are not in Christ, either through salvation or continuing in that message and sanctification, then there are no rewards for your efforts and for your works. Here in Ephesians 2.8, we see that uh, our salvation has come by grace through faith. And it is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not the result of works. Works have no part in our salvation. They have no part in maintaining our salvation. In fact, our works do not even factor into our sanctification. They are a result of our sanctification, so that no one can boast. I didn't make myself more spiritual by working harder for Jesus. No, you come to love Jesus and work harder but easier because you are fully occupied with him and his person and his finished work. This is the proper order for obedience. We abide in him And he is fruitful through us. Because we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice we are created, we are recreated in Christ. We are a new creation. But also even these works that are going to be done They are already prepared for us by God. 
And this doesn't just mean that he has a list of things that he is going to make us do once we're saved. This means that he has already prepared and provided for these works. We've all received the scriptures. We've all received the Holy Spirit. We have all that we need to understand his will and to walk in his will. And that's the issue here, that we walk in them. Just as John commends this little church for walking in the truth and for walking in love, this is the good works prepared for us ahead of time, that we walk in them. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now these rewards that we get, there's only one foundation that they all stand on. Everyone is going to pass through this judgment personally unscathed because our person is identified now with Christ. But the works that we do depend on the things that we believe and the obedience that we have to the truth. In 1 Corinthians 3.12, it says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now we are building on a foundation. What is that foundation? Paul identified it just a few verses before. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, remember, how were we saved? By grace, through faith, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul the apostle laid down a foundation. He preached the gospel. And another is building on it. Other teachers are coming on, and they are building up the body of Christ on that foundation. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Paul didn't come with a bunch of good works. He came with a good message. In fact, this is what he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he didn't come with with a clever and effective language. He came with the simple gospel. This was the foundation that he laid down. And we are careful how we build on top of that foundation. We are to be careful about the things that we add to our bank of doctrine. We don't want to adopt false things. We don't want to add false truths to our truth in Jesus Christ. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So this foundation upon which we are building, is it things of this world, things that will burn up and fire, or are they things of the Spirit? Is it works of our own hands and works of our own flesh? Or is it the work that God has already prepared beforehand that we are walking in? It might be a hay and wood hut that we've built. This is the house that we are so focused on our whole lives building. It may even be a nice log cabin. Looks really attractive, looks really welcoming and warm. Our spiritual life might look excellent because outwardly it looks right, but inwardly these materials are feeble. These materials are faulty. We've built them with the wrong material. And when it passes through the judgment, nothing's left. It's just ash. We pass through this judgment unscathed. We stand on this foundation of Jesus Christ. But everything we built and worked for is gone. It's not rewarded because we did it apart from God. We did it apart from Christ. We weren't occupied with the truth, but rather much better is to build on this foundation with good, solid, strong materials, tried, true, and tested truth, God's word. Now, granted, we were not going to get everything right. Two scholars who are equally excellent at interpreting the Bible might come to two different ideas about one passage, but we are all going to stand firm on the truth of Jesus Christ and that gospel. To varying degrees, some of these works that are not in accordance with truth will be burned away. 
but the structure is there because we've built it with God's word. The Holy Spirit has filled us with God's word so that it might be useful. We might lose a few false flags on our castle. Good. They detracted from the truth. It is better that they not pass into eternity, but that all falsehood be done away with completely. Paul continues and he says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, loss of that work that he did in this life. But he himself will be saved, yet so as though through fire. Now this becomes quite an issue in the spiritual life of the believer. It's a lot harder to build a log cabin because you're doing it by the flesh than to build a stone castle because the Holy Spirit is going to do that. He's not going to help you build your log cabin because you're doing this apart from Christ. You're doing this not with the truth. Remember, being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't getting more of the Holy Spirit, but letting him fill you with God's word, receiving it, believing it. 1 John 2.27 says the Holy Spirit's going to teach you that doctrine. It's going to apply it. It's going to build your spiritual fortress within you so that you can stand strong against the attacks of the enemy. When falsehood, when lies, when false teachers come about, you have a strong castle of doctrine to withdraw into and to rest in faith in Christ. We will be saved through this fire because we stand on the foundation of Christ. Now imagine someone else is coming along trying to build on a different foundation. Everything about that is going to be gone. It's not just going to be a few flags that burn up at the top of our castle. These pet doctrines that weren't really true, we just kind of liked. I know I'm guilty of that too, and I try to weed them out, but sometimes it is difficult. We have fallible minds, and that's why sanctification is a process that takes time growing to know someone. This is what our marriages are like. The longer you live with someone, the better you know them. The longer we are with God's word, the longer we are studying it, the more that we study it, the better we know it. And the more we can remove these falsehoods from our way of thinking, the more we can strip away the world's cosmic way of thinking and adopt Christ's way of thinking. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, Jesus speaking to his disciples, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. The issue is, when we step outside of truth, we are no longer abiding in Christ. When we disbelieve his word, when we cease believing the salvation that we have received through him, the gospel by which we were saved. We no longer abide in him. We have abandoned truth and God is no longer working through us because it would be empowering our flesh. And this is something that the cosmos system, the world system does, not God. First John 2.28 said, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him at shame at his coming. This confidence is in our walk, that we walked well, continuing to abide in his truth, so that when he comes, we are not going to be ashamed by the results of the judgment seat of Christ. We won't be ashamed that we walked in lies, we walked in darkness, rather than walking in the truth. That's how John began 1 John chapter 2. We walk in the light and not in the darkness. We walk in truth and not in lies. John is concerned that this congregation that has children who are walking in the truth might abandon that truth for lies because that is in vogue. And it's still in vogue today. These heresies that come into churches to try to lead them astray. 
You see, Satan cannot remove us from the foundation of Jesus Christ. He can't take us away from the double grip of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and God the Father. But what he can do is destroy our reward. What he can do is make us walk away from truth and become useless to the Lord. He can cause us to stop abiding in Christ by believing a different truth, something that is not true at all. John says, if anyone or anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, Robert Yarbrough, who's the president of Dallas Seminary, has translated this, anyone who innovates and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Now, this, is, I think, is a good translation, and it helps us understand what exactly John is talking about. These teachers have come in with modern innovations on the gospel. It might sound somewhat similar to the Word of God. It might sound similar to the message that the apostles are bringing. But it is not part of the truth. It goes beyond the truth. Anything that goes beyond the truth is, by necessity, a lie. But John, in his metaphor here, is still talking about walking. These children are walking in the truth, but these have gone beyond the truth. These have gone outside of the light that these children are walking in, and they have begun to walk in darkness. And they are trying to lead others into that darkness as well. Now, how do we get our truth in the first place? We are finite creatures. We have a finite grasp of the truth. In fact, we only know the truth that is revealed to us by the infinite God who is infinite truth. You see, God does not run out of truth. God could keep going on day after day, day after day, day after day, telling us about true things. But eventually, for mankind, we run out of truth. What do we do then? Once we begin to preach something that has not been revealed, either through special revelation, the doctrines that God has presented in, in speech or written form in the word, or general revelation, truth that we can observe in his creation. Once we go beyond that, we begin to lie. We begin to innovate. This is no longer truth. But this is how we go beyond what we have been given. If it is not given to us from God, then it goes beyond truth. And that is what these teachers are doing. You see, they're not looking at nature and observing how God created. They're not looking at the word and interpreting creation through that. They are bringing mystical truths, truths that cannot be apprehended from creation, truths that in biblical speech would be mysteries, something that requires revelation, but it has not been revealed to them. They are innovating and going beyond the truth, such as our not-so-friendly Serenthus, who taught that the Christ, the God nature came upon the man Jesus at the baptism and departed from him before the cross. That Jesus was not a God-man, but a man who was possessed by the God nature for about three and a half years. You couldn't observe this from nature. In fact, if you interpret nature through God's revelation, through his word, you would come to an opposite conclusion. He contradicts God's revealed truth. He has gone beyond the truth. We see the same thing in Revelation to these seven churches that John writes to, and these are all under his dominion. One of the big problems in these churches is that they have received false teaching. He says to this church, Thyatira, I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching the teaching which Jezebel, the prophetess, had brought to them, who have not known the deep things of Satan. Now Jezebel, claiming to be a prophetess, would come to them saying that she has special revelation from God. That's what a prophet does. And so she tells them, I have deep spiritual things to tell you. And these are of God, but what are they actually? Divinely interpreted, these deep things are not of God, but they are of Satan. 
When you go beyond the truth, you enter a lie. And who is the father of lies but Satan himself? John warns that these teachers do not have God, but the one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now this is not making any sort of a comment about whether these people are saved or not. We don't know. They could be. They may not be. That's not what it means to have God or not to have God. These teachers are bringing a product to these churches. They are claiming that if you open this package that I have to deliver to you, inside you will find new teachings, the deep things of God. But what this package actually holds is false teaching, which are the deep things of Satan. This is what it means that they do not have God. They have come to deliver God to these churches, but they don't possess God because they don't possess the Son. They are not bringing that message. They are bringing no good message. Their box is empty. They have nothing to offer these churches. And that's what John essentially tells us in 1 John 2.20, that we have no need for anyone to teach us because we already have the anointing. We already have the Spirit. We've already been saved. We've received the truth. You can only receive the Spirit through hearing and believing the gospel. They already have everything that is necessary for them to live the spiritual life. They don't need to accept these innovations from false teachers. Now, these are home churches. John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, they are coming to these people for the purpose of teaching them. They're told that you're not to receive them into your house and do not give them a greeting. At this time, they didn't have sanctuaries like we have here. They didn't have church buildings. Even within these cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, wherever these letters may have been sent, they didn't even have a central meeting place, but they had home churches, house churches. The church in Ephesus may have had many home churches within it. Same for all of these churches. And John, who exercised his his authority specifically over the church of Ephesus probably was over just one of those churches and exercised his authority over the others, but was not there teaching them constantly. He would have been occupied in one house. That's why we have a recorded sermon from him that's sent to all these other houses because there is a paucity of teachers. And so naturally when there is a void or vacancy of teachers. You need someone in their teaching. Someone comes down the street saying, I have things to teach you about God. Say, great, come on in, teach us about God. But what happens when this is a wolf in sheep's clothing? Someone who is coming to this young, perhaps immature church, this church that has more paideia, more young children than adults. The worry is, the worry is that they might receive them and believe them, that they would receive them into their house church, that they would greet them as they would greet an apostle, that they would approve of their message and say, yes, come teach us, and that when they deliver their poison, this church might believe them. That is the issue. And John is saying, if they contradict what I have already delivered to you as an apostle, who witnessed Jesus Christ, who was there and got a, who was directly instructed from him. If they come teaching you anything different, kick them out. Don't let them in your house. Don't say hello. Don't say goodbye. Don't give them any sort of approval. Because what they are spreading and what they are teaching is not life, but death. It's not love, it's hate. They might be the most gregarious guy out there. But if they come in and teach you that you need to abandon what you have learned in Jesus Christ, they are not your friend. They are not there to offer you love or friendship. I'm going to skip a couple of things here. We're told not to greet them. 
This word greet, Cairo, has the idea of approval, confirmation, or an official endorsement. Yes, it means not to say hello, but often these apostles will sign off their letters, such as Paul at the end of Romans or at the end of 1 Corinthians, and says, greet the brothers. This is a fellowship exercise. Greet them as if they are in fellowship with you. And this is exactly what he says. The one who gives him a greeting, who accepts him as one with approval, participates in his evil deeds. This word participates is the Greek word koinonia, which is fellowship, translated elsewhere. If you are greeting them as teachers of you in your home church, you are having fellowship with them. And if you are having fellowship with them in falsehood, you are not having fellowship with Christ. Because fellowship with Christ depends on continuing to believe the message that you were saved by. He does not want them to abandon this truth because they abandon then their reward. They abandon their ability to live healthily in the body of Christ. So John is telling them not to participate with these teachers. Don't share in their evil work. Don't let them in. Don't give them hospitality. Don't give them a bed to sleep in. And then he goes into concluding his letter. It's somewhat abrupt, but they have the rest of 1 John that they're going to receive. In fact, John probably wrote 1 John, and then in order to make this a circular letter, added 2 John to send it around. And so he's saying, probably with full knowledge in his mind, everything that just went into the letter of 1 John, I have many things to write to you. More than just these 13 verses of 2 John, more than the five chapters of 1 John, he has more he could say. But I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and to speak to you face to face. Much better in-person fellowship. I mean, there's probably a lot we could say about this today in our day and age. You cannot, you cannot overestimate the importance of meeting in the body of Christ. We are commanded to do so. You can't live properly with the commandments that we are given. The will of God is for us to encourage one another, for us to exhort one another, for us to commend and to correct one another. You can't do this alone. Most of what we are expected to do in the body of Christ depends on living with the body of Christ. And John is saying, I hope I can come to you in person and share the truth. Share this love by teaching you. He is expecting that they will accept him into their congregation. That they will greet him. That they'll receive him because he is bringing the truth. He has already affirmed to them that he loves them by means of the truth. And so when their joining together occurs, their joy will be made full. Because this is joy, not in some new and mystical truth, but in the firm and solid truth of Jesus Christ. This is the unity and the truth that Jesus spoke of in the high priestly prayer. And he says, now I come to you, speaking to God the Father. These things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. It is the joy of Jesus Christ that we share in the fellowship. Not the joy of fun and games, though there's fun and games to be had. But it is the joy of this fellowship, this eternal unity that focuses around the truth of who Jesus is. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. For all the progress the doctrine will have, as the same gospel message is preached generation after generation after generation, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our fellowship today in 2023 is with these apostles, and it's with Jesus Christ, and it's with God the Father. That is the joy that we have when we believe the truth. He says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known you, that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, 
and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Without occupation with Christ, we cannot love one another because apart from the truth, we cannot love one another. John is concerned for the love within this congregation because if they abandon the truth, they will eventually abandon love. And so he ends, the children of your chosen sister greet you. Remember, this greeting is an approval. To these churches that he is sending this message, he recognizes fellowship between them. The chosen sister is probably Ephesus. This is a definite article on this one, meaning that there is a singular chosen sister in mind, probably where John is writing from. And it is going to a sister that has no article before it, an indefinite sister, which could be to any of the churches that might receive it. This fellowship is expected because they all stand on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. So the main idea this morning that John is concerned for the truth in the churches under his care. He warns them not to receive false teachers or else they might miss out on the rewards waiting for them at the judgment seat of Christ. And just as John warns these churches not to receive false teachers, he expects that they will receive him when he comes to them. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful gift of these small epistles by John. We thank you for the lateness of their date, and we can see how you still had yet more to reveal to these churches. We thank you that we can trust its truthfulness, that we can sense John's love, that we can know more about our position in you, the love that you have loved your son with and the love that he has loved us with, that you have offered him up so that we might have life through him. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.